Good afternoon, everybody. Eddie Webb. We are here at the New Media Lab at Mesa Community College. We're starting our 2022 spring semester with a real special guest we've been trying to get over here. We have Dr. Jake Pinholster, who is the founding director of ASU Mesa City Center. And this is the program that ASU has launched uh, downtown Mesa, and they are going to be offering some amazing experiences for students to learn technology and media. I love their bold ideas of being right up there with USC and NYU and and all the cool stuff. Dr. Pinholzer, welcome to Mesa Community College. Thank you so much, Eddie. And by the way, um, uh, not a doctor. Uh, I'm my I'm, I have my degree is a master's in fine arts, which is considered terminal in the arts. So I'm I am a uh, an artist by trade. Your program is the buzz of the town, and people are really really excited about it. But before we get into that, we'd like to know a little bit about. Let's talk about that MFA. Where'd you go to college? I went to the University of Florida. Um, I got the 16th and 17th degrees in my family from the University of Florida. There's been a a pinholster there for most of the UF's existence. Yeah, I went to the University of Florida for my BFA, where I spent most of my time in English and journalism and switched to theater, you know, partway through and got really engaged on a bunch of different levels, uh, got really involved in design and producing. I was the, the kind of production manager, the lead producer for the student um, theater group there, which has the same size budget as most small regional theaters, like $120,000 a year. And I Loved it so much I stuck with it, but in my last year, I discovered projection and media technology for performance, uh, and that really drove my future a lot. Um, I decided to stay at UF for graduate school because I could get a high-quality education in traditional theatrical education, theatrical design, um, so I did a lot of scenic lighting uh, and projection design, uh, sorry, scenic lighting and costume design, like a normal, sort of the traditional field. But I also took about half my coursework in a place called the Digital Worlds Institute, um, which was just starting up there. But it's very kind of similar, was a, like a forerunner of what we're doing at the Mix Center at ASU Mesa City Center. Um, it was looking at the ways media technologies could affect um, art making, uh, how they could impact society, and really exploring the intersections of engineering and the arts. And so I kind of made my own degree program there and that that definitely defined my path going forward. It's amazing. Yeah. Very, very exciting. I think we have similar uh, interests along those lines. My dissertation was around building Adobe Media Labs and how that impacts. Mm. Um, I studied motivation to learn. Mm. So I was, at, you know, I taught at ASU for three or four years and I was up to Davis for a year and then over in Europe for on and off for a minute and then landed here at the community college. And, um, well, I actually was invited to come down here hmm. and teach. And that's the, one of the, you know, the, the most significant difference I saw between a university course, teaching a university course and a community college course is what motivates someone to learn. Agreed. Yeah. Right? Like when you're teaching a grad class or a 300 level university class or something, people paid a lot of money. Hmm. That's one motivator. Right. Like getting into the college and then just being a part of it. There's a, a lot of motivation. And I think a lot of people that go to the university by and large, like you just mentioned, you had 
12 generations or 12 degrees uh, in your family. A, a whole bunch of degrees over five or five generations. Yeah. yeah. So you have, you know, people are part of that family tradition to have a college uh, education. Yep. And here at the community college, our students, oh, by and large, are, um, you know, first year college students or returning college students or transfer, you know. So there's this sort of range, this spectrum of why people are here. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I became fascinated with was the motivation of what, what, why do we put ourselves through this stuff, right? Yeah. This higher ed process. And what I, what I discovered is uh, a motivating factor was actually putting media production in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And I worked with my tribe specifically on five different areas of culture and citizenship and community. And the biggest thing about how we bridge community was again, to use, we we went back there and made um, some short vignettes of elders and people love to watch them, you know, mm-hmm. and we have revitalized our language. So there was, so I was very excited of, of all of this, you know, of how it, how media can motivate and encourage people to get involved in yeah. community. So the power of storytelling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's that too. The power of storytelling. Yeah. Um, so yeah, very similar paths, man. Um, why did you decide to stay in academia instead of in the private sector? Oh man, I, I didn't, I don't know that I made that decision consciously to some degree. I knew, so when I graduated from grad school, I went to New York and I was working as a freelance designer. Um, mostly like during the day I would be, I would be an assistant or associate designer on Broadway. Like I worked on Wicked and Spam a lot at a number of those sort of things as an associate projection designer. And then in the evenings I'd be doing this crazy experimental theater down, you know, um, uh, you know, in Lower East Side and the village. And making, you know, musicals about urban planning was one of my favorite experiences. Um, and crazy, like, you know, hacking together systems for how to use technology for really immersive um, media experiences as part of theatrical performance. And back then we were using, like, DVD players and uh, old computer screens and, uh, you know, those, the old CRT projectors with the red, green, and blue lenses and just trying to put something together on nothing with no budget and no um, and and no real experience, no professional systems, and that was really a passion. Like there was there was a bunch of things in there that motivated me. It was the kind of hacking together, like the making things that were um, telling stories that nobody else was telling, uh, and that they were experimenting with new modes of collaboration. Like that, you know, we were trying to invent processes on our own with these little tiny companies, um, and that that was really great, but I wasn't, I didn't have enough time for that because I had to do all the traditional commercial work to pay the bills. And I was in my, my 165th performance of Wicked. I I did, because I did the national tour and also all the other subsequent sit downs. And I was watching, I don't know, somebody, some, whatever actress was playing uh, uh, Glinda in that particular production sing popular for the, I don't know how many time. And I was reading uh, I was sitting in the booth and reading a, a magazine and I saw a position advertised for Arizona State University. For the first time I'd ever seen somebody teaching projection and media design in a, in a college theater program. It was the first program in the country. It, you know, there were people teaching media, of course, all over the place, but integrated with performance was really the, the key to me. 
And I, you know, my dad has spent his entire life in education. He's done just about every job you can do from college professor to principal to now he runs a school to teach people how to build artisan craft wooden boats, you know? So it's, um, uh, I kind of had it in my blood and I decided to apply kind of a, a little bit, not knowing if that was the right direction or not. And they were really excited to have me. And that ended up working out really well for me. Um, although it made me ring, uh, ring up a lot of frequent flyer miles because for the first five years I was at ASU, this is back in 2005, I was spending about a quarter of my time in New York and LA doing shows professionally that were the experimental ones, right? Like the ones that were truly experimenting with the form. And I got to stop doing all the other stuff. Hey, hey walk us through one of those projects. So for the listener, what, what does yeah. that mean, a project? Like the one that sticks out to me is, oh, let's see. I, I would say I'll go back to the urban musical about uh, the, the musical about urban planning. There's a show called uh, Boozy, The Life, Death, and Subsequent Vilification of Le Corbusier and more importantly, Robert Moses. And it was one of those shows that should have been like high art uh, that, shouldn't, that nobody should have come to that, or that uh, should have been for a really niche audience, but it became a really hugely popular hit. So it was put together with a group of people called Les Frères Les Frère Corbusier, which was a group that had started back in college. And then they, you know, they, had, they kind of developed a niche for making experimental theater works that retold the story of American history through a different lens. And so this show was mostly about um, Robert Moses's sort of rebuilding of New York City uh, in, you know, through the middle of the 20th century and the tearing down of neighborhoods to build interstate highways and stuff. The process took about six months. We were working on multiple versions of the script, trying to come together with like, what, what kind of system could we put into this theater that would help us tell the story? So we had all sorts of crazy things going on on the set. So it was a lot of video playback that was uh, everything from, we recorded rabbits at a rescue, um, dressed up as like Mussolini and Goebbels having a conversation, to there was remote video presences where we did scenes in other rooms that were then piped in via camera into the, the, the stage itself. We had a, a Sim City game going live the entire show uh, on a different monitor. It was just a crazy kind of melange. And it, like nowadays, it would seem like a mess because we've sort of developed a field. We've developed a set of disciplines for integrating media into performance. But this was sort of early on in that process. And it was, uh, it, it was hugely impactful for me because it, it let me experiment with a, a bunch of different approaches and tools all at once without really having to, to measure myself against a, an existing standard. Um, so there was a lot of like, this is something totally wacky and we know it's wacky and the wackiness is part of it, but it also is like, can it lead to something serious? And then as we went on, the, the, the directors of that production uh, went on to really have an important legit theater career um, but I kind of stuck with him for the wacky shows. So like one of my biggest profile um, productions was I did the Pee Wee Herman show on Broadway. Uh, so we worked with Paul Rubens and the whole, a lot of the original collaborators from the, the TV show. And we made a whole, like a, there was a musical worth of production quality in that show, even though it wasn't truly a musical. And so we did a whole bunch of interesting, cool effects and integrated animations from the original show and built puppets and all sorts of crazy stuff. And, you know, so that's sort of been the trajectory is how to tell the kind of outsider, outside of the box stories in new ways using technology that we've, you know, uh, made choices about how to include that weren't driven by standard process. Brother, I got a smile on my face right now. <laughs> I mean, 
I'm just, you're, you're revitalizing my creative energies of, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the last scene in Sarah Marshall. Oh yeah. Have you seen that with the, the, the puppet vampire the, musical? Yeah. Yeah. I love uh, that scene. Uh, something like that. Or, you know, old history, like Dolly, you know, like, yeah. like you, you're tapping into magical realism. You're tapping into, um, all the areas of the, of the, of the mind and bringing all of that, uh, creativity into a form and i love chaos art yeah i i used to as a real young guy i used to uh, go out to this museum called the gilcrease uh museum in in oklahoma and i would spend hours looking i just get a chair and sit in front of buffalo high mm. and where the paintings you know where mm. the 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 historian the yeah. A historian was trying to record what had happened. And I would just sit there and stare at those until they came alive. And I really wanted to know what was he saying? You know, cave paintings, a mm. sand painting. What does this symbology mean? You mm. know, and that's what, yeah, that's amazing, man. You're part of that. I mean, you're putting all that technology together for that director and the actors to yeah. inter- interact with. Is is there dialogue on the stage or is it all media? Oh, no, this is def- definitely like a, a theatrical show to go along with it. Characters built some of the in that particular show. Some of the characters appeared only on on video. So there was dialogue between characters on video and characters in the room. There was times when the characters were appearing via video, but they were live in a different space. So it was very much like blending the, the it was sort of early in the, the American theaters. Um, experimentation with blending the live and the virtual and the real and the, the, the fake together in ways. And I feel like, I feel like some of that was sort of prescient, not because we were prescient because we had no idea what we were trying to say um, in, on that level. Like we, we were saying things about housing and urban planning and the making of art. But I feel like a lot of the work that happened during that period and not just ours was anticipating this notion of now where we have to be suspicious of media and that, that it doesn't always have the right um, motives, that it isn't always meant to truly inform us and that we can't always rely on it to be a, a you know, a, um, a trustworthy narrator. So I think that's, um, that's something that's really informed my practice there too. I'm a, I'm a media maker and I, and I want to trust and I want to love media, but it's been so hard to tell the difference between media that is meant to harm and media that is meant to do, to do good over the past 10 years, you know? So here's one in the media lab. Here is a a research project that we are just launched this Mm. week. Freedom of speech, political rhetoric, or the benefits of deceit. Mm. Right. Yeah. And our benefits of deceit is, is like a, should be the, the name of a, I want to say it's the name of a band, but it's also kind of the (laughs) song of the 20th, the 20th century, right? 21st century. Well, when we started our discussion with the students, this was the thing that kept emerging from them. You know, you're talking 18, 20 year olds and they have their eye on us and they're watching and they're asking questions about why are the adults creating all this division? Why this thing that you guys call news is just full of nonsense. Yeah. They're not dumb. They, they get it. Right. That's what we're going to be exploring in here. Using media clips and, and I hope uh, I can carry on with your your 
creativity because I really would like to really add in some, I don't know, I was abstract the right word or, I mean, you know, this, yeah. this way of just thinking outside of the box visually. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's always sort of been my, my bad, you know? Yeah. Developing your own visual style, like use your own language. Yeah. Other people's language is never going to represent you well. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's right. You're a wellspring of creativity <laughs> and knowledge and, you know, Arizona, um, we're really fortunate to have you here, man. So thanks for coming here. It's a really refreshing conversation to have because most of my days these days are focused on committee meetings and, uh, you know, hiring processes. Uh, since since I'm, I've become so much the administrator, back when I was an assistant professor, we used to call it going to the dark side. So yeah. it's been, uh, it's good to have a conversation about art making. Yeah, I've, I've heard that thing about dark side. Yeah. <laughs> so... In planning your project downtown Mesa, so the buildings down there we've converted into doing a lot of more media stuff. I went, I went and visited, but I actually went to NAU in the building that we have, the Mesa building. Oh, yeah. And at that time, there was talk of what you got going. So in the design of what ASU is doing downtown, was there provision about how to partner with Mesa Community College? Uh, yeah, there was some, and there was more, it was an approach about how to cooperate with the full range of Maricopa Community Colleges as a system. So uh, we particularly had a lot of conversation with the, uh, the Information Technology Institute, which is right down, downtown, uh, that is right across Diane Meza's program that's right across the street from our new building. Uh, particularly a lot of conversation about ways to create articulation pathways, ways to create courses that were available to both pools of students that were complementary. Our, ours were mostly focused on the, the media technology side. They focused mostly on programming and uh, Microsoft certification and the Adobe side. So we're really creating complementary suites of classes when it comes to the mix of like, we'll take the Unity and the Touch Designer and the, the, the Maximus P stuff and we'll, and we'll actually point our students towards the ITI for where, the, where there's opportunities when they want to get more fundamental in, in some of the uh, the network infrastructure, the the more traditional media stuff like Adobe Photoshop and, and Premiere and stuff, which we can't really touch on um, in the graduate level. There's just not time within a 36 credit hour degree to cover like the entire suite of possible media authoring tools. So we really thought about building those complementary. And then we were also like spent a lot of time on articulation pathways from particularly Mesa Community College and Scottsdale Community College because of the film program. You know, we've, we had good solid articulation pathways to complete the four-year film degree, but what we really want to build next is ways that we can get the community college students can effortless, effortlessly move through the system to even do uh, what we call a four plus one program where they can complete both, a, you know, they complete their associates at the community college, the bachelor's at ASU, and then also add on a master's degree within, within a five-year period. So they stay eligible for financial aid and and can get an accelerated path towards an advanced degree. That's great. Because our film school is a, you do leave with a degree. I went there and yeah. Keegan went there. We both went there. What a great experience. I mean, it changed my whole pedagogy or pedagogy right. or, you know, my whole way of, it, it finally gave me the, the skills I needed to pick up a camera and start what in this book here that wrote a place of belonging yeah. where we talk about modernizing the written word, mm. right. And infuse infusing audio and visual 
into the word because that's the language that our young people are that use. It's just yeah. as common as it was, for, you know, for me to carry around a gallon of a whiteout in my pocket <laughs> from my typewriter. You know, they got a phone and they're watching videos and making yeah. videos and TikToking and I'm, you know, all that kind of. It's there. It's the it's the world they're in, but at the same time comes back to what I think what we're doing and what you're doing is we're finding the humanity in, in these technologies. Yeah, I agreed. Right? That is 100% it. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Well, I mean, I think some of it goes to what you were just saying about kind of a new literacy. And this is an unpopular opinion among a lot of my colleagues. Um, True. But the notion that, you know, one of higher education faculty's uh, greatest passions is complaining about how um, bad student writing is. Uh, but I, I, I argue that by privileging the written English word, we're ignoring the real literacies that need to happen for the students to navigate the lives they'll lead in the future. Um, so yes, sure, people should be able to write clearly in English um, if they're in a world that speaks English primarily. They should also be, one, they should be able to read and write in other languages. And two, they should have literacy that goes beyond that to understanding images. Like not even necessarily that they all become Photoshop masters, but they need to understand the like the way images tell stories and manipulate the way people feel, and what what's the content of an image in terms of what it's trying to achieve, and then extrapolate that into moving images and three D environments. When we get into particularly into virtual reality, where we're submersing the human consciousness into an entirely alternate world that's been authored by another human being to achieve something. That has the possibility of like reprogramming your brain. That is a direct sensory line to your subconscious. And so if we don't have the materials, if students don't have the, the, the cognitive skills to understand how that's working on them, what's trying to achieve and what they should take away from it, and, and hopefully how they can create their own, especially for our students, then, then they're, they're just, you know, uh, candles in the wind. That's it's it's really um, uh, a dangerous thing to not to enter this next hundred years of human civilization without really deep media literacy, in my opinion. So, you've touched on something very important to me, because this is the thing. I, after teaching English courses for twenty plus years, and going through the composition studies over at ASU. When I was over there, I, I went through Dwayne Rowan's oh. piece about composite ret comp stuff and nice. Susan Miller. Oh, yeah. Okay. All, all, she's down at U of A now. And Lynn Nelson. Lynn Nelson had a class called Writing and Being. Mm. And he was one of the pioneers in personal narrative in the traditional form of the institution back in the late 70s, 80s, all that. And he had a rough time. I think everybody that goes first has a rough time, of it, right? <laughs> yeah, because absolutely. Of this notion of complaining, you know, what, what is the priority? What I learned was, especially going, having to go back online and teaching, and that's all you see is the sentence structure. But I can't really teach the student this way of, understanding why a complete sentence is important. And when I get in, when we get in here and we start doing the, we introduce video production, audio production, and we start doing call sheets and we start doing the research that we do 
and you start to balance this visual motivation to tell a story, all of a sudden, the written word starts to really have a practical presence in why I should have this skill. Mm. You, you know what I mean? And so it's not, I mean, if the idea is to get somebody to write well, to write better than they are, again, how do we do that? Have them read more books on Chaucer, right? <laughs> or do we get into their world of literacy and language? Yeah. And that motivates people because we also work in groups and I'm big, big on learning environments. You know, uh, one of the chapters in this thing is about, you know, getting rid of being the sage on the stage, mm-hmm. you know, type thing. My students teach me as much as I teach them these days. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this was, this has always been my, what what gets me excited is that I know after teaching traditional tradition books, teaching tests, teaching all that, what motivates a student to want to write better is this idea of introducing to media arts. Isn't that strange? No, no. I think that makes total sense. I mean, uh, that notion of authentic motivation, like, to, to find the form that works best for you to tell your own story is, is, I mean, it's one of the reasons I enjoy teaching in the arts so much because I think because of social pressures against the arts in particular, I feel like uh, m- more students in the arts are authentically motivated. They're not there because they think they're going to make a million dollars because they're not, right. most of them. Uh, they're not there because they were pressured there by their parents because they certainly weren't. Right. But so you find those people who really want to tell their own stories, who really want to, who really um, are engaged with the making of the thing uh, for its own value, for its intrinsic value. And I think that's um, related to what you're saying, the notion of being able to, they get, they learn the things they have to learn because it helps them do the thing they want to do better. That's yeah. right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And they can, and you hand them the tool that they know. Right. Right. So I've had students that, yeah, so maybe they are struggling to, you know, put string together a bunch of complete sentences. But I hand them a camera, or better yet, when we do our Wacom tablet lesson in here, mm. oh my God, you would not believe, like, you would not believe the, the gift that these students have, right? But mm. they don't get to to infuse that with the, the written word too often, right? So... Yeah, it's just exciting, man. You must just must be excited every day to get up and to explore creativity and language and have the full support of Crow, who's like, he gets it, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, well, on those days where I really get to talk about creativity and language, yeah. I am deeply excited. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I spend a lot of days in where I'm in meetings for eight hours and we never once talk about creativity and language. But so this is, so that kind of day is, is a refresh. And once this building is open, uh, and the programs are gone. I will spend a lot more time in that in that frame rather than in the um, oh uh, we need to talk about finish on the tables for the third floor classrooms for the fiftieth time. You know what I mean? I do. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. That's the journey we've all been on, right? The bureaucracy yeah. lives. You know. You know, you got an institution of hundreds of thousands of people. It's going to develop yeah. some systems. I, I I don't really. ASU moves faster and is more flexible than 90% of higher education institutions or, or maybe more given the number one in innovation tag that um, we keep winning. But the, but the, that's just, you know, after a given level of complexity, 
institutions all go what I call bureau crazy, like bureaucracy, but with a Z. Like it just it just institutes itself no matter what. You know, there's this great line, one of my favorite lines. So as I was coming back to college as a young guy, I was really fascinated with with learning and reading. I get really caught up in reading. And one of the stories, one of the first stories that I had read was from uh, called Ceremony from Leslie Marmon Silco mm. from Laguna Pueblo here in, mm. in New Mexico. And this is what she wrote about stories. I will tell you something about stories, he said. They aren't just entertainment. Don't be fooled. They are all we have, you see, all we have to fight off illness and death. So they try to destroy the stories, let the stories be confused or forgotten. They would like that. They would be happy because we would be defenseless then. Mm. And in this book of ceremony, she's talking about, you know, native culture versus the Euro colonial idea. I mean, and this is why in, in the, you know, in a lot of the Indian communities and stuff, you know, you hear all these stories about, you know, this is why people, you know, like uh, the ghost dance was outlawed, why people were killed. You know, like a lot of the medicine people, the storytellers, the historians, you know, yeah, they had to kill these stories and, and exchange those with things like, you know, Jefferson or Washington threw a rock across the river or something, you know. Yeah. And if you read those early on founding uh, members of, uh, of this country, they write specifically about how important stories were and that we needed, they needed to invent some quickly yeah. to find identity to this continent, right? Mm-hmm. So we're talking about real big stuff when you unleash that kind of creativity. Where is the cultural component to your program? Yeah, it's, so that's been a major theme of the discussions among our faculty is that that cultural component needs to be there throughout. That notion of where is the human in this technology has been a part of each one of our conversations. And it's not, it's about story. It's about who has the right to, to imagine futures. Uh, that's a big part of ours because we're, we're not just telling stories, but we're telling stories about the future. And stories about the future have power because they shape the way people think, what, they shape the way what people believe is possible. Uh, and we're also um, wondering where the place of the body is in a technology that removes us from the body. So. We spend a lot of time talking about those three factors. We also spend a lot of time talking about how we are responsible to our communities. And a community means the geographic community that surrounds the building in Mesa, but also the communities of identity, the communities of the larger cultural framework of Arizona, et cetera. And we're really conscious that, like what you were saying earlier, um, you know, stories have always been a tool and they can be used for either, they can be used for oppression or they can be used for justice. And so, we spend a lot of time um, making sure, as best we can, as you know, we're holding our own cultural biases and, and identities in, in question, that what we're doing is creating modes for people to tell their own stories and giving them the tools to question whether those stories are just. So, Yeah, in, you're empowering people to learn as they go, right? Right. So... Not only is this connection to our local community or our society as a whole, but 
students are learning real life skills that will make them valuable. Yeah. Right. At post grad. I mean, I have had students here. I go, man, you've been here as long as I've been here. You know, like this is not a destination. You're supposed yeah. to travel through here and then, you know, go make a difference in the world. Yeah. And the skill set that you are teaching, where do you see that plugging in the private sector? Yeah. I mean, there's really two different skill sets, right? There's the, and we want students to develop both breadth and depth in both of these. So there's the, there's the hard skill set, which is the, you know, they need to become super proficient in one or more technology tools that are critical at this day and age. And primary, primary among those is like Unity or Unreal programming, because those gaming engines are now the backbone upon which both video games, but also uh, cinema technologies and broadcast technologies are built in terms of virtual production. So there's, that's going to be a core of these programs is getting people to understand what it's like to model a virtual world and then how to deploy that virtual world in various outputs and really looking at it as an output agnostic uh, practice. So how can I develop fluency in one of these platforms so that I can move from onset virtual production to making video games to deploying it for experimental theater work and everything in between? And we have faculty that are coming from each one of those worlds, but are all using those same tools. Uh, and then, you know, it, it's not just those two. It's also like object-oriented programming environments like Touch Designer and Isadora and MaxMSP and uh, tools for traditional linear, non-linear editing. So you know, doing Avid, Composer, and Adobe Premiere are also obviously part of that world because we will keep telling stories in a video segment, in video sessions or segments. Um, but then the soft skills side is actually probably more important to the students who come to us for a full master's degree because you can train yourself on the hard skills by YouTube or by the, you know, the manufacturers or the publishers websites have, they want people to be able to use their tools too. So there's plenty of tutorials out there. Um, and some people learn better at their own pace in those environments, those, those types of hard skills. The soft skills are uh, collaboration and engagement, the, like how to work together responsibly, how to initiate a project develop it thoughtfully and then execute it well and, and, then, and then evaluate it um, in a meaningful way. And particularly how to do so with partners that are both in your in-groups and out-groups. So how do we do collaboration with community or with industry, things that go beyond just the people who are next to us in the room? And then the second soft skill is storytelling. How do we understand good stories? And how do we, how do we think about stories that are just, stories that affect people and, and are impactful? And then the third for us is world building, which is kind of a new word for practice, although it's always been around in writing, in theater making, in filmmaking. You, like, you build a world that has rules. But storytelling needs to evolve in that re regard because so many of the place, the stories we're telling, we don't control it. Like It's not a linear story where the author tells a story and the other person absorbs it. When we're creating video games or immersive experiences or interactive experiences, the audience has agency. So we're not just talking to consumers or to an audience. We're involving participants. So the world building practice is really about how you build a world where people can tell their own stories, but that those stories are shaped by the environment in the same way that gravity and uh, lights shape the world that we're in right now. Uh, and how do you do so in a way that's responsible and that um, um, creates authentic experiences? It's amazing work. Keegan, do you um, you have a program that you do where you build cities and towns and infrastructure, right? Yeah, there's there's city skylines, but I also do work in uh, Blender. 
Yeah, Blender's another great tool that we use for a lot of our 3D modeling. Uh, we, we do both Blender and Maya, but we, we like to make sure students have some uh, experience in Blender because it's free and open source. That's right, yeah. And plugs in directly to uh, Unreal. Yes, yeah. yes. But I mean, you were, you guys are like, you guys have gaming where you build towns with economies and, right? Weren't you doing something like that a few years back? Seems like maybe. Uh, I'm, I'm doing Minecraft stuff. I've, okay, I've Minecraft, got some yeah. server hosting, got a, got a nice community of people all over the country on there. Yeah. Yeah. That stuff's really, Minecraft and Roblox have really been transformative for people to understand world building because there's, you know, down to ages, uh, you know, five, uh, you can get people who are really engaged in that. One of the things we're doing this summer when the building kicks off is we're, um, we're co-hosting, this is pretty new, we're co-hosting a, a video game design and development camp for um, students on the autism spectrum between grades 6 through 10. And it's going to be, it's co-sponsored by Visit Mesa and the Mesa Regional Foundation for Accessibility, Diversity, and Inclusion and Arizona Autism United. And we'll basically we'll have, we'll have about 50 to 60 students from those grades who will be learning game design, not just as a valid professional development uh, route for, for folks. And, and folks on the spectrum uh, with autism spectrum disorder have a really terrible employment rate. And so finding them ways to get creatively involved, but also to develop social groups and to develop uh, places where they can express their own identities in forms that are uh, more comfortable to them than social interaction. So there's, there's a lot of, like the notion of being able to build a world is compelling to people because they get to show off how they see the universe in a way that you can't really do through a lot of other means. That is, that is so exciting. Yeah, I'd love, I'd love to come document that. I'd love to have you, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Absolutely. I, I would love to make a, do, a short documentary and follow that because, again, there you go. You know, you're opening up, you're making the world a better place for people who, you know, that just have a different angle of, of, of things. And, and, you know, back in yeah. the day, we would call us genius or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, a medicine person or somebody yeah. that, that has a, a different paradigm of, of, of thought patterns. And that's where discovery happens, you know, yeah. and, and that you create these environments and places where people can, that that, whatever that diagnosis or whatever that thing is, is no longer the issue. Yeah. Right. Exactly. The thing is, here are tools. Let's get busy. Everybody, uh, Eddie Webb, we are here at the new Media Lab at Mesa Community College. We are talking with Jake Pinholster, the founding director of ASU Mesa City Center downtown. This is the new program that ASU has launched into their uh, amazing spectrum of media production, and uh, we're real happy to have you here. We like to give our guests the uh, final word. So, um, what would you like to say to the community? Uh, the final world is world building. No, I'm just. Um, I keep I, my brain just went to the back to the because we were talking about the Pee Wee Herman show. The brain went back to like the word of the day, and everybody shouts. Um, so I was kind of wanted to uh, throw one out there. Um, but no, I think the, the, the thing I'd like to leave the, the larger Mesa community with is just the fact that this whole program, this building and everything that goes into it and everything that comes out of it will be because of Mesa, will be because of the city and because of its people. Some, some of the, those people didn't want it, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to be for them and around them. So the thing I would say is treat us as something different than the normal ivory tower to look out and see places to engage modes of uh, working together, co-creation, and uh, just help us 
realize our mission of being something different than universities usually are in a community setting. How do people enroll in your program? Uh, enrolling in the actual master's degree programs are, is done through the Graduate College website at ASU.edu. Uh, those, the, the three programs are up now. There's the, the Master's of Science in uh, Digital Culture with a concentration in Extended Reality Technologies, the Master's of Science in Design with a concentration in Immersive Experience Design, and actually coming in the next uh, month or so, the Master's of Science in Futures in Design, all which those programs all work together and have slightly different emphases that are made clearer on the website. But we also have lots of other ways of getting engaged in the, in the ways we're going to have, be having community workshops, community screenings and events. The building contains two Dolby Atmos uh, screening theaters, uh, as well as a performance installation space and a massive 70-foot high-resolution LED screen on the outside of the building. There'll be lots of opportunity to come and make things, see things, be a part of the, the creation of things. And we also will be working with Mesa Public Schools and Mesa Community, American Copa Community Colleges to build other programs as we move forward. And, the, the building kind of gets its legs underneath it. That's exciting. We want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come to Mesa Community College and to talk with us about your program. Man, what an exciting uh, endeavor you have. I can't wait to see what the next five, ten years uh, look like in your program because I think it's going to be a big, big hit for sure. Thanks. And thank you for having me. And, and I can't wait to be able to show everybody what this building can do once it's open. Yeah. Well, I'll look forward to that. In my dad's language, they say, and we will see you again. And remember, take care of each other out there. We are all we have. Royalty-free audio, Grinoline Dreams, by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. You can find more of his work at incompetech.com. The Maricopa County Community College District, MCCCD, is an EEO-AA institution and an equal opportunity employer of protected veterans and individuals with disabilities. All qualified applicants will receive consideration for employment without regard to race, color, religion, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, age, or national origin. A lack of English language skills will not be a barrier to admission and participation in the career and technical education programs of the district. The Maricopa County Community College District does not discriminate on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, disability, or age in its programs or activities. For Title IX 504 concerns, call the following number to reach the appointed coordinator, 480-731-8499. For additional information, as well as the listing of all coordinators within the Maricopa College System, please visit maricopa.edu slash non-discrimination.